studying through a transitional point in Luke's Gospel. We'll be looking together today at the final episode in the Upper Room and also the first episode of Christ's uh, passion, of his suffering. But as we go through, I hope you see the reason for this. Luke has put these two episodes right together, not just because of chronological order, but also I think hopefully you'll see the way that uh, Christ's prayer in the garden answers the questions that are raised uh, by the conversation together in the upper room. And so we're reading together today Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 46. And before we read this word together, let's pray again and seek the Lord's blessing and help. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we pray that through this, your word, you would speak to us, that you would give your Holy Spirit that we should be equipped for every good work, that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Help us, O Lord, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and through faith in him to have life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment." And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. In uh, December of 2004, then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld paid uh, a visit to a U.S. Army base, Camp Bering, located in central Kuwait, and it was about a year and a half into the Iraqi conflict. The troops stationed at Camp Bering were preparing to head north, to help coalition forces who were pressing into Iraq. As these things go, uh, a visit from the Secretary of Defense had all of the normal fanfare, all of the normal publicity. Uh, There was a tour of the facility. There was uh, plenty of meetings. There were plenty of meetings with the top brass. And with news cameras rolling, there was even a Q&A session between the Secretary of Defense and many of the soldiers. Well, there, uh, a young man, an army specialist by the name of Thomas Wilson, came to a microphone, and he asked a very blunt question. He said, why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromise ballistics glass to up-armor our vehicles? 
uh, Rumsfeld gave uh, an answer that amounted somewhat to we're working on it. Uh, but judging by the media coverage back stateside, it wasn't really the answer that was the issue. The issue was that the question never had to be asked in the first place. Of course, nobody wants to imagine that their husbands, their sons, their fathers perhaps are being sent out into harm's way without the protection that they needed. It's still a live issue. You can find organizations online that every time defense budgets uh, begin to be tightened, they dedicate themselves to providing body armor for all of our frontline soldiers. And the basic uh, gist is, the bottom line, is that if you're sending soldiers into a battlefield, you want to make sure that they're equipped. And Jesus had the same concern for his disciples in the night before his crucifixion. In a matter of hours, everything was going to change for Jesus. Everything was going to change for his followers. In just a matter of a day, Jesus is going to go from being a popular teacher that the leaders secretly hated to being one who was a condemned and executed enemy of the state. And it's often said that the shadow of the cross falls across all of Luke's gospel. And in that way, all of Jesus' ministry is lived within sight of Calvary, no matter where geographically he might have been. And uh, and Jesus here is preparing his people for the shadow of the cross that's going to fall upon their lives as well. Now, Jesus sent out his apostles, and he still sends his whole church out into a spiritual battlefield. And these verses are here to show us how we can go out equipped. So the first thing Jesus tells the apostles, the first thing we need to know, is that we should expect Christian ministry to encounter hostility. Expect Christian ministry to encounter hostility. In verses 35 to 38, Jesus is preparing his followers for a change in what Christian ministry is going to look like. There was a time when Jesus sent them out before that the good news of the kingdom went out with with relative ease. When it went out with great and smashing success, they came back, you remember, in chapters 9 and chapter 10, talking about how even the demons were subject to them in their name and in Jesus' name, and and they were excited for how wonderful and how easy, in a sense, it seemed to be. Going forward, things are going to be an uphill climb, and Jesus tells them here that the reason for the difference The reason for the difficulty is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Pay attention there in that first paragraph to the line of reasoning, to the logic that's in the text. Jesus says, verse 35, remember, when I sent you out without money bag or knapsack, he's referencing chapter 9 and chapter 10 when he sent out the 12 and then he sent out the 70 and in both situations he sent them out with no provisions. He sent them out specifically to depend upon the Lord from town to town and from day to day. And then in verse 36, he says, but now, there's a change here, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. It's not that God is going to stop providing, but the circumstance is going to be different. Now they need provisions, now they need some money, now they need a little bit of luggage, now they need maybe even a sword, a weapon, if they can get their hands on one. Now ministry trips are going to be marked by difficulty and by struggle. But then the reason for that struggle comes in verse 37. Jesus says, for I tell you, remember when, but now, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. You see the logic there. Ministry for God's people is more difficult because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
This really is a subset of the first principle of life for the believer. The first principle of life for the believer is that the cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes some things in comforting ways, and it changes other things in sobering ways. The comfort comes, even in this passage, when we recognize that it is at the cross of Jesus Christ that God declares his verdict on our sins. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53. Interestingly, the only place in the Gospels where Isaiah 53 is explicitly attributed to Jesus. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, this this famous prophecy about the suffering servant of God. Now, in this context, knowing what is about to happen, because we've read to the end of the story, we might be tempted to take that prophecy and restrict it, to make it more narrow, to apply this only to the fact that Jesus was crucified between two career criminals, that he was numbered among the transgressors. But Isaiah 53 has a lot more uh, to do with what God says about the death of the servant than what the world says about the death of the servant. You remember Isaiah 53, verse 12, that Jesus is quoting here, God's word. He says, I will divide the portion among the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. For he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes the intercession for transgressors. This is God's verdict. These are the words of God the Father, delighting in the Son who offers himself in the place of transgressors. He was numbered with us. The language then of numbering follows through into the New Testament. It shows up all over the place, uh, describing or, or, or demonstrating to us what we like to call the doctrine of imputation. It's God's gracious accounting system. And so Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, that is, will not number his sin. So where the Lord does not number sin, sins are not remembered, but where God numbers Jesus among the transgressors, well, he places our transgressions on the head of his Son. And so because Jesus died, we can have life in his name. Because Jesus suffered, we can be accepted with God the Father. And at the cross of Jesus, God declares his verdict on the sins of his people. That verdict is paid in full, forgiven, remembered no more. There's comfort here as Jesus speaks to his disciples, but there's also sobriety recognizing that at the cross of Jesus Christ, the world also declares its verdict on our faith. Of course, Jesus was actually numbered among the transgressors. He was thrown out of Jerusalem like trash at the end of your driveway on Collection Day. He was crucified between two thieves. He was condemned and put to death by men who, at least some of them, thought they were doing a wonderful work for God. At best, the leaders of Israel saw Jesus as an unnecessary distraction, and at worst, they saw him as a blasphemer, a satanic influence, they tried to say, one with great spiritual influence and great spiritual power who was leading the people away from worship in the temple and away from the teaching of the rabbis and away from the safety of the nation of the whole, and they thought it was their religious duty 
to have him killed or, or silenced or otherwise erased. And Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, and he knew that the same attitude, the same hatred that was going after him was going to follow his disciples. And Christ came to be numbered among the transgressors. And all those who are numbered with him will receive the same verdict that the unbelieving world has passed upon Christ. That verdict is unwanted, unnecessary, potentially dangerous, and to be avoided at all costs. You remember Christ's sobering words in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And if they persecuted me, know that they will persecute you. You see, the cross of Jesus changes everything for God's people. So we ought to level now with the fact that our lives and our ministry in Christ are going to encounter hostility. Post-Calvary Christian witness is a difficult task. It was difficult for the apostles, and maybe yes, in different ways, but it's difficult for us as well. You don't have to be a missionary in India. You don't have to be the pastor of a church to dig into the difficulty of what Christian ministry is all about because God has placed us all in the world in different circles and with different influences, and he's placed us in the world as his witnesses to the gospel. Wherever he's put us, wherever we live and work and reside in our families, he's put us as his witnesses in the world, and he's given us a ministry as well, one that's going to encounter hostility. And that means that wherever the Lord has placed us, in in whatever ministry circles he has, has called us, we need to be prepared for the conflict of our faith. That was the point of Jesus' comparison. At one time I sent you with no provisions, but now you need to be prepared. After Calvary, the apostles couldn't depend on the hospitality of their Jewish neighbors. They were all persona non grata. They were numbered with him, with with that lawless one, with Jesus Christ. And didn't we already take care of him? They were going out into dangerous situations. They'd be going into foreign lands of missionary work among the Gentiles. It would be foolish to leave everything and to go with nothing packed or prepared. You know, in some circles of Christianity, they still believe that mission and and ministry ought to be carried out in this way. And so sermons are preached without preparation, and and missionaries go out without knowing why exactly they're going, or making contacts, or or having any sort of system of oversight, and uh, personal evangelism is just expected to happen out of sheer spontaneity. But if you understand the hostility that we face in the world as we go out as God's witnesses, you will take preparation for gospel work seriously. That's why at Redeemer we give our missions money uh, to mission works, to missionaries that are vetted and that have oversight, that have planning, that have systems of accountability in place. Not because we don't trust the Lord, but because we do. We think long and hard about where our resources can do the most good for the gospel in the world. At least we try as hard as we can. That's why it's probably a good idea if you have that family member, if you have that co-worker that you want to share the gospel with, it's a good idea to know a little bit about them. To listen and to learn something of the way that they look at the world so that you can see where they're itching, so that you can go back to the gospel and you can present the gospel in as winsome of a way as possible. 
Does your winsomeness convert them to Christ? No. But the Lord will use it. The Lord will use your preparation. The Lord will use your labor. The Lord will use the, the study and the prayer that you put in. We need to be prepared for the difficulty of Christian ministry. This is why you parents labor to raise your children with the gospel in their ears and on their tongues and chatted around the dinner table. Why? Because you know that the world outside will not hesitate for a second to tell your children what they think about your faith. And if you are not catechizing your children in Christ, the world will be. And if you take hostility seriously, if you know what we're going to encounter in gospel ministry together, you're also going to take preparation seriously. You'll busy yourself with study and prayer and commit yourself to the fight of faith. We're also in need here of committing to God's battle with His weapons rather than with our own. Thankfully for our benefit, I think, the Scriptures have shown us again Jesus Christ's own disciples clueless. How often it, it's an encouragement to us when we don't understand, when we go to the scriptures and Jesus speaks metaphorically and we take him literally, and he speaks literally and we take him metaphorically, and sometimes it seems like we're all twisted up just like the apostles. That's what's happening here in this passage. Jesus told them they would need a weapon and they took him literally. There's even an air of satisfaction and, oh, look, Lord, we've got these two short swords. Twelve men among us, and some of them are still spoiling for a fight with the Romans, and there's this sense of satisfaction. Maybe we've got what we need. We're equipped, aren't we? No, it's a shame upon the history of Christianity the number of times and time again that the sword of Luke 22 has been taken literally. It often leads to disastrous consequences. In, in the early 14th century, the Roman Pope Boniface VIII declared that just as the apostles wielded two swords, so the Roman church wielded two swords. It had the right to rule over both the sacred and the secular lives of its people. When Magellan sailed his ships around the world and came to the Philippines, his crew went to great lengths to pantomime to the natives there that they had a choice. They could either accept their Christian God or they could be killed. And we could multiply the sad tales. Centuries before Boniface and, and before Magellan, the idea of a sword in the hand of the church has been used to legitimize evangelism by force. It's been used to legitimize the idea of a holy Christian empire that can conquer lands and conquer people all in the name of Jesus Christ. It's clear that Jesus was not commanding any such thing. You only have to read to the end of the chapter, right? You only have to see the way Jesus rebukes his apostles when they tried to rescue him with swords drawn, with ears cut off, and he tells them no more of this. Matthew's gospel in that section ends with a stronger rebuke. Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, Christ responds, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus is speaking figuratively here, but so often we run to the things that we think will prepare us well. Our earthly strengths and our, uh, our human might and the things that we can arrange for ourselves, whether they're militarism or simply intellectualism or academia or whatever ways we try to bolster ourselves and say, I'm prepared, I've got this, I can do these things. 
Now, Jesus told the disciples, from now on, they're going to need a sword. He's speaking figuratively. He meant that their struggle is going to be so great that they have to apply themselves. A lot like Paul says to Timothy, they have to apply themselves like soldiers fighting for their life. They must be willing to give up anything rather than to give up the fight of faith. John Calvin put it this way. He said, he does not call them to an outward conflict, but only under the comparison of fighting, he warns them of the severe struggles and the temptations that they must undergo and of the fierce attacks they must sustain in spiritual contests. There is, of course, a real battle to be fought for Christ, but again, as Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The tools of Christian conquest are not guns and knives and tanks and bombs, and and Islam may have a well-developed theology of jihad, but it finds no place in the Christian morale. The sword that we wield is the sword of the Spirit. The enemies we encounter are the powers and the principalities, the philosophies of this dark age exalted against Christ. The apostles, in their dullness, misunderstood Jesus, as we often do. And Jesus, in his kindness, took the opportunity to show them a better way, as he often does for us. This brings us to the second main point of our sermon. Because we expect to encounter hostility in our gospel ministry, we should also pray for the strength to do God's will. This is how Christ equips us. He teaches us to pray for the strength to do God's will. Now, as we turn to verse 39 again, there is a shift of scenes. Jesus moves from warning his disciples about Christian warfare to taking them onto the battlefield itself. Verse 37, Jesus said that at last what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now things are beginning. Now the passion is about to take place. And it all begins in the garden of prayer. Luke, as he so often does, cuts out some of the other details that we remember from the other Gospels. He focuses our attention here in the garden on prayer. Specifically, he focuses our attention on a command to pray and on Jesus' example of prayer. Verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And just in case we miss it the first time, Jesus repeats himself again in verse 46, the end. There's there's an envelope around all of this, bookends around all that we see here. Uh, Jesus finds his disciples sleeping, sleeping for sorrow, and he tells them to get up, rise and pray, he says, so that you may not enter into temptation. Now the last verse, verse 46, the Greek is a lot more explicit, and it, it spells out really that Jesus isn't just talking about the content of their prayer, but he's talking about the protective power of their prayer. In other words, he's, he's not just saying, go and repeat the Lord's Prayer, or lead us not into temptation. But he's telling them that, that there is something about a watchfulness in prayer. That prayer becomes a tool, it becomes a means for avoiding the spiritual pitfalls of a presumptive, lazy faith life. It is a perfect corrective here to the worldly weapon approach of spiritual security that the apostles tried at first. They left the upper room thinking they were ready. They were equipped for battle with their two short swords. That Jesus is calling them to a struggle that can't be won as easily as thrusting a blade or pulling a trigger. 
Jesus knew that in the next hour or so, all of the apostles are going to enter into an ordeal that would tempt them to some form either of despair or disengagement. Already their hearts are heavy. Already they're sleeping with sorrow about the news of Jesus' impending death. But all the more when they watch him very soon ripped from their midst and carted off before Herod, carted off before Pilate. When they hear the news of him crucified for the sake of a bloodthirsty mob. Jesus knows that it's going to be more, that they can, more than they can bear. Jesus knows that it's going to be more than enough to cause them to question to shake their faith in what they believed God was doing among Jesus in the first place. And so here in the garden, Jesus stands on the edge of his greatest triumph, his triumph over sin and his triumph over death. And here in the garden, the disciples are peering over a cliff into desolation. No worldly weapon invented by man can protect them from the temptation that's rising in their own hearts. The temptation to believe that perhaps they've simply been abandoned by God. And so he calls them to the weapon of prayer. Prayer is that weapon that's fashioned specifically for cutting to the quick of our doubts about God's goodness. You're aware that prayer is often misunderstood as something that is passive. Sometimes you speak to older saints and they're growing to the point where their bodies are breaking down, perhaps their minds are weakening, they can no longer serve the church with energy and with vigor in the way that they once served the church. And so they'll say almost as as a defeat, almost as a last resort, I guess that all I can do now is pray. But prayer is something active. Prayer is something powerful. Prayer is the grace of drawing near to God with our needs. Prayer is the violence of strangling our doubts with submission to His will. Prayer is the protection of trusting in His promises at exactly those moments we're tempted to believe that His promises can't be trusted. And so Christ sends His apostles, His witnesses, into the midst of a hostile world. And sometimes He sends us to do battle with our very large doubts and it feels like all we have are our tiny bits of faith. And he wants us to be equipped for the battle. So he gives us this command to pray. He calls us to take up the protective armor of the shield of faith. To pray at all times so that we might not enter into temptation. And then in a special measure of his grace, he also shows us what, what faithful, watchful prayer looks like. One commentator wrote that The Lamb of God must be distinguished from all other victims by his free acceptance of death as the punishment for sins. In other words, Jesus is an acceptable sacrifice for sinners because Jesus was a willing sacrifice for sinners. And here in Jesus' prayer, we see that willingness to suffer taking shape. A few quick details to notice about this prayer first that Jesus prayed to his father honestly. He knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He didn't hesitate to to open his heart 
uh, to open his troubled heart to the Father. He didn't hold back the big ask the way we're sometimes tempted to hold back the big ask because we're afraid we might pray the wrong thing. We might pray in a way that somehow God is offended by what we desire, by what we're looking for from him. Jesus doesn't hold back those things. He opens his human soul. He asks that if there is any other way to accomplish salvation, he might be allowed to escape what is coming for him. I have to remember, of course, that what was on Jesus' mind, the weight of his sacrifice, was more than just the pain of it all. He was thinking and, uh, and, and, and apprehensive about more than just the physical death. Jesus' anguish is over the cup of God's wrath poured out upon human sin. Jesus knew that at the cross he's going to die the death for our sin and live to tell about it. And he knew that at Calvary he's going to suffer the separation of God's justice. Martin Luther called the cross mystery of mystery, where God deserts God. And we might not be able to understand it or perhaps even explain it, but we can understand the honesty of Jesus' prayer. That he doesn't hold back, but he opens his soul and pours it out to the God he knows can hear him. He prays honestly. He also prays to his Father submissively. This is the hallmark of the prayer in the garden. This is the struggle that we know, probably from countless pictures and images, trying to capture the, uh, the turmoil of that moment. Christ in the garden sweating like drops of blood. Christ in the garden agonizing, struggling with what in his human body he desires to escape death. A, a good thing, by the way. Death is the enemy. Death is the enemy that has crept in because of sin. Death is not something to be embraced. It's not a good thing when somebody wants to experience death. Jesus doesn't want to experience death. He doesn't want to experience the wrath of God. But there is this other desire. There is this desire for the will of God to be accomplished in his hands, as Isaiah 53 says. And so you notice that this, this submissiveness doesn't show up as, as something artificial. It, it's not like the way we sometimes sign our emails and down in the signature line we put in those initials DV, Deo Valente, if God wills. Whatever plans we're making, if God wills it. And it's merely an afterthought. It's merely something outside. No, this prayer for God's will to be done bubbles up from Christ's heart of love for the Father. It's how we know that Jesus' will and the Father's will are not out of sync in the garden because Jesus prays for what he actually wants. And what he actually wants is the Father's will to be accomplished. Kent Hughes wrote that Jesus was caught between two proper desires. It is proper and good to want to avoid death, alienation, and wrath, but it is proper and best to want to do God's will whatever the cost, and Jesus chose the best. So he prays honestly. He prays submissively and finally he prays earnestly. Verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus prayed like his life depended on it. He prayed like he had real business to do with the Father. And as his anguish Increased, so did his prayer until the point that he's sweating buckets. And you and I have never prayed with this much vigor, with this much passion, with this much exertion. 
He prayed earnestly. Then again, we're tempted to think that Jesus had an unfair advantage in praying earnestly, aren't we? He had something that we don't receive because Luke tells us that an angel from heaven appeared. A holy messenger from God appeared and strengthened his hands for the work. And again, we don't know how it happened, but we know that it did. And he received some actual extra spiritual fortification. He received some, some divine encouragement. And we're tempted to think that prayer for us would be a lot easier if we would receive the treatment that Jesus experienced. Isn't part of the, uh, the difficulty of our prayer lives the fact that we pour out our hearts and we open our lips and we don't hear anything in response? And wouldn't it be a wonderful grace to us? Wouldn't it be a wonderful reinforcement that we're on the right track, that we're praying in the right way, if an angel suddenly appeared? Wouldn't that keep our minds focused on what we're praying? Wouldn't it keep us praying with greater earnestness? Wouldn't it make us pray with greater faith? And we think Jesus has something that we're lacking here, but God has equipped us with every good thing. And so believers, if you are in Christ, you have something better than an angel from heaven showing up and strengthening your hands for earnest prayer. That is, if you believe that Christ on the cross was numbered with your transgressions, and if you believe that the Savior died to set you free and to give you the promise of life in his name, you have something, or rather someone, greater than an angel from heaven. You have the spirit of adoption as sons. You have the spirit of Christ himself, bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. We've been equipped with every good thing. We have received the Holy Spirit of intercession who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, the same way that Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. And he helps us in our prayers. And he strengthens us in our prayers. And he equips us for the fight of faith. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, says Paul in Romans. But he helps us. He helps us to pray honestly because he helps us to groan. He helps us to see our problems and pour out our hearts to him. He helps us to submit to the Father because he gives us a love of the will of God that is greater than the love of the will of ourselves. He helps us to pray and to keep on praying like our souls depend on it. But what do we see here in these passages? Well, we see that Jesus knows that we face hostility. He knows that we face temptation and the snare of unbelief in this world. And that's why he's equipped us. That's why he gives us life in his name. That's why he gives us prayer in his spirit so that we would be fortified against the schemes of the devil and the weakness of our own flesh. Christ has not left out anything that you need, dear believer. Can't you trust him to equip you for the fight? Let's pray together in his name. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our Savior who labored in prayer in the garden, submitting himself willingly to the will of the Father, to see it accomplished in his hand, to see himself numbered with the transgressors, to be the one led away like a lamb to the slaughter. We thank you for his prayer on our behalf. 
one who is numbered with the transgressors yet always lives to make intercession for the saints. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Oh, help us to pray to you honestly and submissively. Help us to pray earnestly. Help us to pour out our hearts to you just as Jesus did. Help us to follow his example and to trust in his sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.